Um, me again, as usual. So, something, um, something happened yesterday. It hasn't happened in a long time. I forgot to mention it. I don't know why I was obsessed about other things and everything. But as I was driving with my mom, my mind shifted. Now, I've long since learned, um, I mean, the first time this happened was, I was maybe 14 or 15 years old or something like that, and I always had a tendency to panic when it happened back then, but I've long since learned, don't panic. Take it easy. Breathe. And that's actually something I've really kind of that's how I've dealt with it since the last, um, I'd go so far since, since 2008, 2009. Now, when I say shifted, what I mean by it is, it's almost as if I have been put to the passenger seat inside my own body, and something is happening. And it just, it's almost like I've, I'm still in control of my physical body, but I'm, it's like I'm lacking spatial awareness. So, it's, it's almost like I'm, I'm lacking the ability to be able to wire the incoming information to, for lack of better words, the things that are going on. So, it's really hard to explain what's happening. It's almost, um... I mean, here's the thing. I know... You know, that's something in front of me. I know that's... There's, there's a car there. I can feel it. But I, I can't really identify it with my senses. I know that I've got to move to the left, you know, in order to merge and everything. Um, but for the life of me, if you were to ask me to identify what's a car and uh, what's a, um, I don't know, what's a road or what's a stoplight and that kind of stuff, um, I know that I'm supposed to stop. But I, I can't tell you what I'm seeing. So, this is actually among the reasons I think I was born blind. You know, I think I learned at a later time how to wire my, my vision to my senses. You know, and I think every once in a while it misfires. You know, something goes awry, you know, and that something is indicative of how the world works around me and everything. You know, it gives me little hints, little cues. You know, visually, things become dereferenced for all intents and purposes. I know that I'm in an intersection, you know, and I know, you know, that, uh, that that's a stoplight there. I know I'm supposed to merge to the left. But I, I lack the visual cues, you know, so I still have mental acuity, but I lack the visual cues. 
So this had been diagnosed um, at a much younger age and everything as epilepsy. And I can assure you it's not epilepsy because I've still got full control you know, of my body. You know, I'm not convulsing. I'm not having seizures. But what I am experiencing, you know, for me is indicative of something entirely different, which, you know, for me, I've later come to consider that, uh, no, I was born without uh, vision. I, I learned it, you know, through development and basically through, you know, through other senses. And at, at this point, it's just like what the world looks like from other people's perspectives versus how I see it. I often wonder, are they one and the same? I, I'm really, I don't think they are one and the same. You know, and this is among the reasons I believe that. So, it's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just, for me, it's suggestive that if you're a blind person, you teach yourself how to see. Is the world that you teach yourself how to see the same, same one in the same world, you know, particularly if all the cues that you have, you know, for stimulating your world and everything, are obtained through feeling and through touch, are all the cues, you know, that you're actually receiving, um, you know, does that, how, how easily does that paint a picture? You know, it's just like, when you see red and you identify something as red, I can't touch red. I can't feel red. I can't hear red. But to some degree, I actually can hear red. Red is a, is, is a color. It's a wavelength on the magnetic spectrum. And with the highly attuned ears, you can actually hear the color of something that's actually passing by. And with two ears, it makes it possible to actually identify its location in three-dimensional space. You know, so not only can you triangulate something's position, you know, leveraging sense of hearing that actually has two ears, you can leverage, you know, the, that to actually sense something's physical location in two-dimensional space or three-dimensional space, but you can also tell the color of it. So if you have a sound, you can tell what that sound's coming from. And without vision, you can actually figure out what colors it's comprised of. So, in any case, um, my buddy David, David, shout out to you again. You're the only one stimulating some of these uh, conversations and everything. It's interesting you make the uh, comment about the Braille thing. You know, and for me, you know, it's, um, I look at that Braille thing and, I, and I'm... You know, I mean, uh, sure, I see the ironicness, you know, that, that you pointed out and everything. You know, but in a general sense, if you're trying to help blind people actually see the world, you know, and um, navigate the world and everything that you know, you know, this is something I've actually in the past given a great deal of thought, you know, because I had long ago, you know, come to believe that my epilepsy, you know, what I'd been diagnosed with as epilepsy wasn't an epilepsy, and that I had formed my own worldview, you know, it was very, very distinctive based on my own imagination. I had to imagine the colors in a lot of cases, imagine what red looked like, you know, um, imagine in a lot of cases, uh, you know, um, what somebody looked like, you know, the faces and that kind of stuff. And to some degree, I do believe this is where a lot of art comes from. 
know, Picasso, Van Gogh, all this other shit and everything. These people, in a literal sense, saw, saw the world, you know, through a lens that nobody else sees it through. And with that, all we, all we saw was basically a literal transcription of that information to, uh, to the canvas and everything. Is, you know, so... In a lot of cases, I do believe that uh, all of that and everything is just basically indicative, you know, of this world. That maybe, natively, I didn't see it, but through a long period of time and through understanding time itself, I actually taught myself how to say in a very, very weird way. And um, I think for much of my life I wasn't ready, you know, for my conscious mind to be aware of that. So subconsciously, I let it be something that was hidden to me. I let that open question remain, you know, about what it was. You know, and part of the reason for that is so I can actually imagine other possibilities, you know, for the sounds I heard. You know, not everything. I wasn't ready to see the world as it truly existed, I suspect. You know, and particularly if I'm seeing a world that's uh, based on, you know, warfare, Terminator warfare, or, you know, everything else. You know, um, I don't know, the Matrix and, you know, hellish landscapes and that kind of stuff. Well, if that's the world as, as it supposedly truly exists out of me, well... For me, I probably would choose forever to be naive to that. You know, to be um, narcissistic, you can say. Self-indulgent. And basically say, you know, I veto that reality and I overlay my own. I mean, it sucks. You know, and be nice to basically tell the world, look, you know. You can have that and I can have mine. You know, I think this is actually ultimately what's responsible for creating two separate realities. You know, one reality where, you know, maybe that was the truth. Maybe that was the path. Maybe Armageddon and, you know, Rapture and all that shit and everything was absolutely positively true. Maybe I just got to the point where I'm just like, hmm, your reality sucks. Doesn't help me causes me more pain than anything. So eventually I got sick and tired of it and found a way to erase my own mind and memories of these events to disassociate them, to push them off into fiction, to basically start creating my own world. Imagine my own world. You know, so every once in a while I get a hiccup like this. You know, and it happened twice yesterday. So, that's where my, my physical senses ended up becoming disassociated from, um, or my vision became disassociated. But it didn't happen with any other senses. You know, so if I close my eyes in that moment, you know, I can certainly feel the flutter in my mind and everything, you know, how it was disassociated like that, but there's no other indication anything's going on. I can still hear things, I can still feel you know, vision. It only affects vision. That's actually what I realized yesterday. I mean, I'd, I'd had hints at this before and really hadn't, hadn't taken into consideration, but it's just like, well, shit. It is associated with vision. You know, it has been the, the entire time and everything. Imagine seeing for the first time. Imagine going a lifetime, not seeing. And all of a sudden you see 
for the first time. I think it's hard for a lot of people to imagine that. And I think to some degree that's exactly what happened. To some degree my mind's starting to understand. And I don't know, my emerging from a matrix and coming to grasp vision for the first time? Am I coming to converge with this world that I created through my own imagination? A collective has finally agreed to basically accept my perspective and it's converging with my own. And what I'm seeing is basically my mind coming to terms to become a union with the collective perspective and everything, which has been my own anyways. I don't know. I think that's a definite possibility. So, in any case, um, it's just a weird feeling. You know, and it's really hard to describe it, too. Imagine never having been able to see. And for the first time, you see somebody's face. You imagine the lines. You imagine a smile. Maybe you imagined it all. But seeing it for the first time, <laughs> maybe the mind just isn't ready for it. So in any case, yeah, that was a trip. That had happened yesterday. It happened twice. So, it took about 45 seconds for it to subside, and I didn't tell anybody. You know, my mom or anything like that. This is the only place I'm discussing it. I don't want my mom to worry and, you know, concern herself. And it's just like, you know, sure, somebody could potentially say it's dangerous it happening while I'm driving. And it's just like, no, not really. I mean, to some degree... It's, it's hard to explain, but I know that it's perfectly safe. You know, it's just like, here's the thing, it's just like, if you are on autopilot with your own physical controls, you know, about guiding yourself around the world, you know, and you trust those instincts in, implicitly. I'm hearing the sounds and hearing the, you know, the and seeing the colors and everything. It's just like, I'm, I'm trusting my instincts on in which direction to go. <clears throat> but, no, so I just stayed calm. And I was talking to my mom the whole time, and, yeah, I kind of stayed quiet and concentrated. I really took my time this time to really kind of analyze it. What am I, what is this? You know, asking myself, what is this? What am I feeling? Why am I feeling this? It's kind of weird. But, once it stopped and all of a sudden it happened again about uh, another mile down the road, and I'm just like, nope, I need some cold air. I need something that pulls me out of this, because I knew, you know, because it was visually oriented and everything, 
um, that I needed some other kind of stimulus and everything to make sure that I stayed, we'll put it this way, stayed in that moment, you know, because I felt like my mind was drifting out of that moment and everything, and, and that's where it does get dangerous. So at that point, I ended up um, opening up the windows, and it's chilly up here. It was 35 degrees outside. My mom didn't really ask any questions or anything like that. And I'm just like, yeah, you don't mind if I open up the window and everything. I just want some fresh air. And, uh, yeah, ended up doing that, and at that point, boom. You know, it ends up um, feeling a lot better outside and everything. So, in any case... It was a little bit of a trip. A little bit of a trip. So, with that said, that little experience aside and everything, you know, sometimes I just, um, you know, wonder. It's just like, how much of the world, you know, is censored, you know, by my own vision? How much of it, of it is imagined? You know, how much of it is real? I mean, uh, these are silly questions to ask. You know, my mom's lack of response at uh, at the outside temperature and everything was kind of weird. But in any case, I don't know what to think about it. I don't think I want to think about it. <clears throat> It's too many different possibilities. So, in any case, um, other than that, I just I want to document that. That's one of the big things. Uh, I made a mushroom chicken for dinner tonight. Uh, tonight. And it was okay. Um, I ended up by. I mean, I've been making a fact to rate these recipes online and everything. And the five star one, you know, for the Cajun the night before, and this one got a three star. It was just okay. It wasn't wasn't great. It wasn't bad. It was a little bit bland, and uh, you know, so I ended up at that point taking it and turning around and basically saying, okay, you know, um, what can I do at this point? And what can I do differently next time? And one of the things I would definitely do is get some higher quality breadcrumbs. Um, the ones that we had were generic, and they were just okay. Um, the other thing I would do is, uh, is certainly end up um, using, uh, probably, you know, finding something to spruce up. It was uh, basted in a uh, chicken broth, you know, so you've got chicken cooked in chicken with mushrooms. And mushrooms don't have really a, a strong taste to them, thankfully. And, uh, in, they're in this breadcrumb and everything, and, uh, was really, there was, um, no, no real spice, no seasoning to it whatsoever. So it was really kind of mellow, um, just a, a mellow flavor to it altogether. So I just ended up saying, okay, well, you know, this one's, eh, I mean, it's something I probably would try again, um, but I would try, probably try a different sauce or something like that, and actually get something with a little bit, um, a little bit saucier, you know, to it. It had, that, that chicken bullions needed replacement, it needed something to actually add a little jazz to it somehow. I mean, if I'm in, in the mood for a mellow dish or something like that one evening, sure, you know, it's something I might have and everything. But uh, if I'm in the mood for, you know, anything with a taste to it, well, I probably wouldn't do that that one again. So, tomorrow night is the chicken tikka masala. 
and yeah, that's about it. Um, other than that, there's really not a whole lot going on here. Been playing Watch Dogs 2 today. Uh, had this fucking race. So what I've been doing with Watch Dogs 2, since I already have played it once, I'm playing it again. This time I'm uh, I'm doing it and basically doing all the side quests. And I pulled down the DLC, the downloadable content for it. And I'm taking all of these and I'm more or less saying, okay, you know, I'm going to um, focus on creating these things and, and finishing all all the side quests before I go back to the main storyline, which I already finished before. Now, I'm interested in getting... Uh, there is no statistics kept in the game and everything, but I want to make sure that there's absolutely nothing else that I can do in this game world and everything. Uh, it's kind of a, just a personal challenge, you know? So, they've got a whole bunch of different races in it. So, they've got drone races, motorcycle races, ATV races, they've got uh, car races... <laughs> whole bunch um, a whole bunch of different things like that so about uh, two days ago I started going through the motorcycle races and they're combined combined with ATV races and before I could only get silver for this one race and I was bound in intent on getting gold on this ATV race and uh, let's talk about a pain in the fucking ass I must have stomped and restarted that race um, I'm not kidding, probably on the order of maybe 400 times. So, I probably died maybe 50 times in it, um, but I stopped and restarted it 400 times before finally I ended up getting to the point where I was just like, you know, and I refused to put it up. I mean, I, I was committed, you know, so I would have taken the next couple of days, you know, just to just to hash out that one race. And altogether, that one race, which is only three minutes long, um, I spent probably ten hours doing, you know, and uh, like I said, various times, quitting it and restarting it, you know, and all this other stuff. So I was hyper, hyper, hyper uh, obsessive about it. And, um, you know, I ended up... Finally, finally, you know, I ended up having a good run, and uh, it wasn't a perfect run, but I still managed to break the three-minute barrier on the thing. I had come so close to it, you know, at least half a dozen times. You know, one time I came to three minutes, point, it was like point eight seven. Point eight seven of a second. I was literally less than a second over the three-minute mark, and that gave me a silver. And it was just, like, so frustrating. It was so close. A um, couple of them were, you know, two seconds and three seconds over. But that, that .87 one just kind of like, oh, my God, what a pain in the ass. You know, and the problem with it is just, it's like, if you hit a jump, um, there's, there's two jumps in particular. One that goes over a bunch of trains in it. And um, another one which uh, takes you uh, down the side of a hill. Well, the problem is if you if you plant the one going down the side of the hill, um, since you're going at it uh, at an angle, if you plant it wrong, um, you know, landing the tires at a at a bad angle or something like that, immediately the ATV will spin out of control and it becomes unrecoverable, and at that point, boom, you go plowing into a wall or plowing into a car, and that's five seconds at least right there, sometimes ten seconds to recover from that. And it's just like, that's all it takes. All it takes to blow a gold medal. That literally, 
one 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 of those impacts and everything sideways on on that one stupid little hill that that one at least a hundred maybe 150 times you know that I restarted on because I ended up not planting that one right and you would think after so many times that you can actually get it right but the thing is there's a couple bounces that come right before it that if you don't hit it at just the right perfect you know perfect place and then bounce back over you could be bouncing as you hit this hill and um, that that'll throw it throw off, you know, the impact, and boom, you go flying into a tree as well. So it's just, you know, it's not that much different than driving an ATV at high 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 speed, you know, in a uh, in a forest. You know, you you may know the trail, but if you're going at top speed, and uh, despite knowing the trail. Um, there's parts of, parts of it that there are no trail on, and if you hit the wrong, you know, the wrong groove or something like that, boom, that's all it takes to spill it. It's just not, not kind at all. A motorcycle is a hell of a lot easier to control than an ATV. That's actually what I learned on this one. But, anyways, that, um, that was one thing. Now, the other thing was, um, the other jump was... There's two uh, two jumps. One was pretty easy to plant, and all you have to do is just land it, and it's a high jump and everything. And two to three, maybe 20 seconds later, there's another jump that comes right after that, and it, it goes over these trains. Now, the problem is there's a blockade on top of one of the trains. Another train is um, slightly ahead of all the other ones, so if you don't hit that jump at the right angle, you can nail that blockade, you can hit the edge of the train, um, and basically half on, half off, and instantly you spill, and, you know, you, I mean, it's just, you, you can't, if you land two tires on the train and two tires off the train, there's no recovering from that, none, and, um, you know, you can guide the thing midair, um, somewhat, but uh, there's only so much midair guidance you can do to prevent hitting a, a train like that and everything. So that was uh, problem number two. And then when you're land bouncing on the train tracks, you know, if you don't land that jump, you know, somewhat well, um, what ends up happening is you could bounce and all of a sudden lose control on the bounce. So not only do you have to make the uh, make that train jump perfectly or nearly perfectly, but you also have to make sure that you don't overcorrect in order to avoid the next train that's actually coming up. You know, otherwise, boom. You know, at that point, you'll end up um, having a bitch of a time actually trying to uh, trying to correct it, and you spin out of control again. That's again ten seconds, and uh, probably fifty times I fucked that one up. That one came later than the other one. The other one was precisely 59 seconds into it so you would hit that thing and I knew that I was timing I, I was I had a good time if I hit the first one that you land at an angle um, I knew I had a good time if I landed and it was at the one minute mark I knew I was doing pretty well but uh, usually I would fuck up after that so at that point if I hit that and I was over you know and I fucked that up and I was over the one minute and like 10 minute 10 second mark at that point I just restart it 400 times so in any case two minutes and night or 50 57 seconds I think was my was my final time for the best run that I had 
and that was gold. So that was a pain in the ass. But anyways, I'm just going through and I'm just doing these missions and everything and just basically playing, you know, playing the game. And one of the big things I'm doing is I'm really kind of intent on making a Watch Dogs 5 you know, four or five, probably aiming at five, and uh, base, basing it in Phoenix. And part of the reason for doing this is just basically saying, look, you know, um, Watch Dogs 1 and 2, phenomenal games and everything, two more so, more so than one. And I like, love, I should say, the funky, eclectic, um, hipster, as uh, somebody quoted online, vibe to it. Um, it's just got the San Francisco vibe down really well and everything. You know, and my problem with, um, with Phoenix in general, in the past anyways, has been Phoenix has been kind of like a, um, a blasé city. It, it doesn't have, um, a strong, what I consider, culture to it. You know, sure, it's a kind of a retirement community and everything, but to me, um, it's more than that. It's so much more, you know. So the way I looked at it was, uh, you know, I'm looking at this is, if I can actually start painting, you know, um, Phoenix in a different light, you know, leverage a game like this to actually create the landscape and create the, you know, the scenery to that I've I've come to know and love of that city and everything, you know. I mean, it's it's pretty easy to create. It's a really really wide open spaces. You know, that's one of the interesting things about it, and it's unlike, you know, any of these cities that are depicted so far digitally, whether or not it's Chicago or San Francisco or you know, um, or Chicago and uh, Watch Dogs One or San Francisco and Watch Dogs Two or what's the other one? Um, Los Santos, aka Los Angeles, and uh, in in Grand Theft Auto Five, each one of these, you know, has their 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 vibe and everything to it. But the cities are are complicated. They're interwoven. Are it's not that they're complicated. They're fairly unstructured with the approach and everything. Where one of the things I've loved about Phoenix is it's built in a grid. You know, most of Phoenix, at least Phoenix in its core, the metropolitan area, not so much. You know, so if we're talking about cities like Scottsdale and um, even even the other cities are a lot like that, but Scottsdale especially uh, still has has the mile uh, marker. So, you know, there's Scottsdale Road, there's um, Chaparral. Basically, there's a, a major street artery every mile. That's the cool thing about Phoenix. Every mile it's built like you can trace it out on grid paper really easily. Now sure there's everything you know interspersed with a, between a mile is completely different and then you know you got the hills such as Camelback Mountain and all this other stuff to concern yourself with and everything but in a general sense you know the city itself um, by and large uh, I would say at least probably 70% of it is built on a grid. And that grid makes it very, very easy to navigate. And, uh, and then you get into some of the, you know, the, the hillside terrain and that kind of stuff where it becomes a little bit more complicated and uh, particularly between the hills and that kind of stuff. But the but in a general sense, you can still, you know, find your, your way around pretty easy and everything. It's not that tremendously difficult to get around. Well, I like the idea of recreating this at scale. 
you know, within a, uh, a video game. <laughs> you know, and with that scale, you know, just basically take it and just say, hey, you know, I mean, I've got this scale here, you know, that I can actually use with it. And, you know, with this scale, you know, what else can I do? What else can I add to the city, you know, to provide it? Some of the culture, you know, the vibrancy, you know, um, that the, that it lacks that other cities have. You know, so putting this in comparison and everything, um, San Francisco has Silicon Valley, plain and simple. You know, that is that is its claim to fame, is basically the dot-com type companies and everything. Um, Las Vegas, you know, for instance, is all about the strip. California is all about the theme parks. You know, they it certainly didn't depict that in Los Santos for some reason, but it's also about the movie industry. And they did do a great job in depicting that in Los Santos with uh, with Grand Theft Auto V. Um, Chicago, you know, hands down, they did a fucking awesome job when it comes down to the lore, you know, for the game. They, they discussed the whole, you know, Al Capone and all this other shit and everything that, you know, basically anybody who's anybody, you know, going through the 20s and 30s, you know, from, from a criminal activity perspective, you can basically know that Chicago was probably their home base. You know, it has so many of the stories that, that you know, of mobsters and, you know, the the whole underworld type activity and everything. And you want you want to go to that kind of place? Well, guess what? 1920s, 1930s, you know, even up through 1940s and everything, Chicago is where you're going to go. And that city was predicated, was built on that. And, you know, it um, it's it's got its... It's deep in its culture because of that, and and that actually stirs in the flavor a little bit to it and everything. You know, and, and for me, the one thing that I've loved about Phoenix has certainly been Scottsdale, you know, but um, there's, there's something what I consider missing, you know, to Phoenix, you know, um, besides me, of course, you know, and, uh, and I just, what is that, though? You know, what is that flavor? What is that that texture, you know, if you want to put it like a, I'm <laughs> doing my cooking and everything, what is that ingredient, that missing ingredient, you know, to, to the lore, and, and I've got an idea, and it comes down to, um, comes down to the intelligence community. Now, Washington, D.C. has tried to actually do a claim to fame for being the home base for intelligence. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to reframe it. I'm going to make it so where those areas, you know, the NSA in, uh, in Fort Meade, you know, in Langley, you know, or the various different locations that uh, CIA has been depicted in Chicago, have been put there as satellites. But the real facilities are actually based out of the Phoenix area. And that's the whole whole goal of watchdogs. You know, the watchdogs I want to create. You know, it's basically there's going to be a discovery by the hackers. You know, I'm going to use DeadSec again. I actually love the idea and premise of DeadSec, and I, I'm encouraging them, you know, to come out and actually be a formal hacking group. And uh, what I'd like to do, you know, with them, hopefully they're listening, you know, is uh, is basically have the uh, ability, you know, to create an espionage story, 
potentially, you know, around the life of a character, maybe not that much unlike me, you know, that discovers that, uh, that the espionage community is right there in Phoenix. It's been there all along. You know, they use smoke and mirrors to make it appear in other locations on, on occasion. You know, but there's a reason for it being there. And that reason is going to come out in Watch Dogs 5. So the culture that the city has isn't necessarily obvious to the layman. And it's not like the obvious culture of Hollywood or the obvious culture of, you know, big huge casinos and that kind of stuff. It's in a community, the entire community. And the entire community is the world's most secret community. And that's actually what I want to uh, to bring out in this game. And basically build a mission around hackers that have relocated you know, from Chicago, from San Francisco, from other places around the world to try to understand why does everything lead here? I am... Um, I'm playing Watch Dogs 2 because I'm trying to get myself in the uh, mindset of the whole hipster groove. I love the idea of creating a feel, a vibrant, underground feel, of what they created with the vibe in San Francisco that was a little bit, a little bit more above ground. Creating an underground feel to the community and everything. So we're... Okay. You know, you want to know where the security community, where the black hats and the white hats mingle, and this is where it is. You know, and there's going to be a discovery by the uh, by the primary guy, you know, by the lead hacker and everything, the one that uh, you play as an avatar. That uh, that there's a lot more to this world than you ever considered, and you know, basically the goal is to to teach the player. Um, about time travel and time travel's involvement, you know, with the with this community, and eventually you'll get uh, access to these time travel mechanisms and everything as a hacker. You know, and um, at first you're not believing any of it's real, and all of a sudden, boom, something happens, and you discover not only is it real, but it's fucking scary at first. So, in any case, um, I'm returning to Watch Dogs 2 because I like the idea of maybe taking 5 to 10 years to build this thing. Probably by myself. Doing what I consider um, a bang-up, amazing job that's going to make any game nowadays pale in comparison. Not just in, uh, in story breadth, but also depth, size, scope. You know, my goal is to, in a literal sense, take any game that's out right now, the biggest ones that there are, and literally dwarf them. Make it so where this thing's literally minimum, you know, one terabyte in size for the installation size. So, size alone isn't the goal. You know, the goal really is to tell a story, you know, and to make it so where you can go mountain biking if you want to. There's going to be mountain biking races. You know, you can go hiking, you can be a pickup artist, 
you know, what I'm trying to do is actually create a story in a world, in a city, with the full vibrancy of the city that I grew up in. And maybe actually take it into consideration that maybe I grew up in the simulation I created in the future. And it seems so real, because I created it based on memories of the past that I had. Sounds weird, but anyways, it's a formative goal. Watch Dogs 5. So, it's going to take a shitload of work, and I don't know, I want to make sure it's done right. So, in any case, uh, checking out for tonight.